everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am very excited to welcome my guest to the show. I will bring him in in just one moment. Now, normally this is the part of the show where I would be chatting with producer and self professed bad boy of podcasting. Yes, a nickname he gave himself, Tony Thaxton, but he's filling in on drums, uh, at a show right now. So he's not here for me to make fun of the nickname that he gave himself. So I'll just have to give you guys the Tony update. Um, I think he's good. Evidently, he's very busy with I don't know what. So busy that he was able to go to Disneyland yesterday. <laughs> How busy is that really? Anyway, so that's the Tony update. Okay, now on to the... I have a personal update, though. I've started a newsletter. Everyone has a newsletter, and now so do I. Um... And, uh, look, I, I started it on a newsletter service called Review that has like an integration with Twitter. I, I do not love Review so far. If Review is listening, get your shit together. You're going to lose me. I'm going to go to Substack. That's what I think I'm going to do. So, um, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, I just love her attitude. It's so positive and cheery. And I want to read more of what she has to say. Um, the, uh, an issue I'm having with review is I can't just say, yeah, go. Like if I try to give you the URL, it's very long, um, which that will be fixed once I, I move over to the other one. But uh, on I've been tweeting it out. So if you follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen on Twitter, you can find the subscription link. And so far, I would say people have been very pleased with my two newsletter issues that I put out so far. Someone texted me today and said, they experienced a couple sensible chuckles, but they said it in this, the, in like the way of like, they were laughing their head off, but, but the word said sensible chuckles. So, you know, you might laugh your head off. It might be a couple restrained, just a, a couple, like just tight lip teehees. You never know what to expect. Okay. Now, but I do know the kind of laughs, the kind of unbridled guffaws you can experience if you read the work of our next guest, of our only guest on this very episode. He is incredible. He's so prolific. He could put anyone to shame, you guys. (laughs) He has written, and I hope this count is correct. He can let me know in a moment. By my count, based off his website, nine books that he's written. He's contributed to seven books. He does a podcast. He is a comedy writer. Now, I, back in my journalism days, would say I'm a music writer. And then people would be like, oh, what have you, like thinking I was a composer. And it was just this syntactical confusion that came from saying music writer. Hence, I, w- I started saying I'm, I write about music or like I'm a music journalist which then some people think is pretentious. But he's a comedy writer, and he actually writes about comedy, but also writes comedy. He does it all, you guys. Uh, Please put your hands together for Mike Sachs. 
Thank you. Boy, you made me sound competent. You're more than competent. I don't think I realized just, I mean, I had a sense of how prolific you were, but I don't think I realized just how insanely prolific you are. What's going on? <laughs> Whose mind are you, you trying to is. change? It's, it's depression and anxiety and OCD. And there's only three things that help alleviate depression and anxiety for me. Exercise, alcohol, and writing every day. That's it. And that's it. Do you still engage in exercise and alcohol? Yes. Okay. But see, some people might just go all the way with alcohol and stop doing the other ones. It seems like you found a balance. Yeah. Well, uh, for a long time, I didn't. Well, I, sh I shouldn't say for a long time. I would say for maybe five, six years after college, I was. I look back at it as being my fat Elvis period. I was cir <laughs> circling the drain a bit. I was very depressed, very anxious, terrible OCD, and uh, wasn't exercising, wasn't being creative. And I was drinking, you know, I used to live in New Orleans, so it's not hard to be an alcoholic in New Orleans. Um, but what I did find eventually is that the OCD that I have is an energy. And if you can funnel it in the right direction, which I try to do now, uh, it can be used to your advantage. And I found that by forcing myself to write every day and to feel uncomfortable if I don't accomplish something every day, um, you can use it to your benefit. And that's what I've been doing these past 15 years or so. It's just every day I have to accomplish something or I'm a mess. And Rather than um, being, uh, you know, like I was, and like unfortunately a lot of OCD people are and depressed people, very insular in their own lives and not accomplishing anything, I do think it's an energy and I do think you can use it to your advantage. So I do try to do that. And I do try to, you know, exercise. Um, and uh, you know, by doing those two, it can sort of tamp down the need for alcohol. But I found that those three things, alcohol, creativity, and exercise, are really the only things that help uh, me anyway with depression. With And I, I do want to get into some of, some of that, the darkness, if we can call it that, which I think we can. Um, yeah. But with the writing, are you um, attached to the, the results, to the reaction people are going to have to the writing? No, I, it's, I, I don't know the results. It's a very um, solitary endeavor because I write alone and I, you know, people read these things that I write alone. So it's not like I've ever seen anyone read these things that I write on the subway. I mean, I have opened for David Sedaris a few times. We're friendly and he's very graciously allowed me to open for him. And in that case, you can hear the reaction immediately. But I have to say, I kind of like not hearing the reaction because I, you can push more. You can get a, try to get away with, um, things that you wouldn't otherwise you can take chances mm -hmm. and i don't necessarily think a lot of what i write is maybe laugh out fa loud funny but it's what interests me uh to write and also to read so it's not like i have to appease a live audience at a late night show or at a live um concert you know i i can do things that are maybe more literary and more 
dry, you know, dr- more dry than it would be if I had to do it live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of my favorite jokes that I uh, wrote for these pieces that I did read live didn't get a reaction. And it was, it was interesting to go through this experience because writing for a live audience is totally different than writing for an audience who are going to be reading um, inwardly, who, um, you know, could read a book in bed, say, or an article on a subway. So it's just a different type of writing. But I do think, you know, in the end, I do prefer writing for the written page rather than for a um, a live audience. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different beast. So you have been published, I mean, you've been published everywhere. Vanity Fair, New York Times, New Yorker, McSweeney's, um, I mean, just all, 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 all the ones, all the pres- prestigious places that one would want to be published, you have been published there. And then additionally, you have all these hilarious books that you've, that you've written. Which type of writing came first? Oh, well, that's interesting because I never got into writing to get – are you living in a treehouse? Where are you with the birds chirping? <laughs> I'm in Burbank <laughs> in a treehouse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Brooklyn. There's no uh, – I think this, the rutting of raccoons you might be hearing in the alleyway behind me. <laughs> but no, I, I got into um, writing – uh, to get into comedy writing. I never got into it for the journalistic. I was never in a news, uh, part of a newspaper. I was never, you know, in high school or college. That was never a dream of mine. I just sort of stumbled into it because I, um, didn't know any other way of, I, you know, I needed to earn money, freelance money, and I didn't know how else to do it. I mean, my original goal was to write for Letterman or SNL. And I thought by writing, funny pieces for the page i would be called up like one would in a you know the major leagues from the minor leagues in baseball and that's not how it works but that's all i knew because i didn't know anyone in the business and my parents didn't know anyone i had no one to ask so i sort of had to stumble my way through it so i did uh write um and i i worked for the washington post as an editor i edited uh george will and jane bryant quinn and david broder and all the columnists and um just sort of stumbled into that and then also stumbled into interviewing comedy writers. I mean, that, uh, that, that came by accident really. And it's funny because in some ways I'm, I'm best known for that, but Mm -hmm. in no way did I want to be known as an interviewer. And the only reason I, I went after these comedy writers to interview was I just, you know, for selfish reasons, I wanted to know, uh, what they would recommend for me. It was like informational Uh, interviews for you. Yeah, for me it was, and that that was one part of it. Another part was that I knew a lot of these old time writers. This was the late nineties were dying off. It was like the early jazz musicians, and I wanted to reach out to them and talk to them before they passed away. And um, you know, they really were a bridge to another time. Whether they wrote for Bob Hope or the Marx Brothers or early radio, um, I love that stuff, um, and I wanted to you know, make a connection with them. So interviewing really was not something I wanted to do as a career. And I was sort of really taken aback by how much people liked the interviews. I I never thought of myself as a journalist, Mm -hmm. was always as a comedy writer. But what I tried to do with those interviews is I didn't, one of my pet peeves is when you read uh, interviews with comedy people is that the and interview when were, you say interviews and sorry I'm interview I'm interrupting no, you. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. But do you, do you mean specifically in a question and answer format? Yes, okay. I wanted it to be in their words. I didn't want it to be uh, through the prism of my my words Got as it. an article. I wanted it to be a strict 
Playboy type or Paris Review type Q and A. So question answer, question answer. Well, exactly. Right. With a little introduction to start with, but I wanted it in their words and I didn't want to be a part of it. I mean, one of my pet peeves is with uh, interviewers of comedy people, and this is something you do not do and you're because you're a very good interviewer, but oftentimes the interviewer will try to outsmart or out funny the interviewee. And it's something that has always bothered me. So I always thought, like, these are my guests. They're over my house, an imaginary house. (laughs) The interview is theirs. It's not mine. I don't want to be funny or too clever. I want all in their words. And that's what I tried to do with both of the books. I put out two books of interviews. Um, But it really was, uh, at at first, um, a way for me to connect with these people. And also, I didn't know... I, I always looked for books like this, and I never really could find them. I could find books on interviews, say, with um, writers for your show of shows or or Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find anything uh, that was more current, that influenced me, whether it was Letterman or um, Mr. Show or The Simpsons or Cheers or what what have you. And I just wanted to put out something that might have interested me as a kid in high school who was interested in comedy, especially with writers, not necessarily performers, but like, who puts this together? How does one become a writer for comedy? And that is what always interested me. How does one find or have their name on the end scroll at the end of a sitcom or at on a late night show. It was, it was just a mystery to me. I didn't know how one did it because I didn't know anyone in the industry. So I wanted to put out a book and my ideal reader was, was a kid in high school who would stumble on this book, say in the, in the library as they were skipping math class, mm-hmm. you know, that to me was the ideal reader. So it was sort of a, a selfish reason to put out these books but uh, ironically, I sort of became known as the interviewer of comedy writers. And that's not something I ever set out to be. That was never my goal. I didn't want to make a career at that. Right. These books specifically being Here's the Kicker and Poking the Frog, right? Yes. So, well, so then you have carved this amazing career out for yourself as the interviewer of comedy people, oftentimes comedy legends, who won't open up to other comedy writers. And then also this other career as, you know, writing these books, um, these hilarious books, and we'll get into all that. But does some part of you wish that you had become a writer for Late Night or a writer for SNL? That's a good question. Um, I I do feel that I wish I had done it, but knowing and and be, being friendly with so many people who have done it, I don't think I would have liked it. Mm-hmm. I mean, these so-called ideal jobs, whether it's writing for SNL or Letterman when he was still around or sitcoms, uh, n- there's no ideal job. And I, I've worked so independently now for so long, you know, 25 years now, that I don't think I would fit into that realm. I mean, I grew up, I think like most people, looking at the uh writers room of your show your show of shows or the first season of SNL or the Simpsons as being this sort of magical land that you could go in every day and laugh with friends and produce great work. Yes. That does happen every once in a while, but at most jobs are 
pretty uh, difficult and you go in and you may not respect the head writer and you may not respect the other writers and your jokes may not get in. You may, may feel frustrated. So I do wish that I had maybe been on a season of something, but you know, and that was really my goal in writing for print was to get noticed and get called up. And that never really happened, but I, I have sort of uh, fused at a very specific niche for myself um, and I don't know if I could do that these days. I, I don't know if I could go into a room every day, you know, having worked for myself. There is something to be said for putting out what you want, how you want to do it, and uh, just moving on down that road. Um, there's a freedom that I, I would miss. Now, there is there are definitely advantages to writing for TV, and that the main one would be money. Hmm. Um and it can be sometimes of a struggle to to produce enough where one makes a living. But I just think the freedom of doing what one wants, to me, is worth uh, perhaps not having as much money as I would say writing for a sitcom that I that wouldn't interest me. Yeah. So you wanted to be a comedy writer, but you got a job at the Washington Post as an editor of columnist. How did how did that happen? Well, what happened was I was down in New Orleans after school for a number of years and, you know, drinking and eating fast food. Your and, Elvis um, period. My fat Elvis period. And um, I eventually moved back to where I was from, which is Northern Virginia and D.C. and Maryland, and worked in a record store and just sort of mediocre my way into the Washington Post. I was working as an editor at an association just to make money. From there, I was working at Knight Ritter, which was a, um, a nightly news service uh, that would wire out articles to various newspapers across the country. Then I worked as a temp uh, at the Washington Post and snuck into the employment office at the Washington Post, which you're not supposed to do. And really, the only re reason I got hired at the Post was I knew a very, very ancient word uh, our uh, word processing program called Xyrite, which was even before a word. So it was just luck. It was just luck that I sort of got into that. And from there, because of the Washington Post, I got in, you know, I got a job at Vanity Fair. And because I was at Vanity Fair, I met New Yorker editors. You know, it was just a lot of stumbling my way uh, through the darkness because I just didn't know how to do it. And that's one of the reasons why I like to give advice to young writers is like, you know, save yourself some time and avoid all the shit that I had to do because I didn't know. Um, it was a mystery to me, but it doesn't have to be a mystery to everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just had to sort of figure it out for myself. Where did you go to school? Tulane. Did you like it? I love the city of New Orleans. I mean, I didn't do well grade wise. I was mostly in the city. Uh, it was a little too fraternity oriented mm -hmm. for me, um, but I, I do love the fact that I got to live in New Orleans. Um, so let's talk about passing on the right for a bit. I do want to get into before this before I let you go, which is not going to happen for a while. So settle in. Good, but <laughs> no, I'm settled. Let's do. I this. do. I do want to get into the OCD and the depression and and some of the stuff that came up when you were on our group show a while ago. Um, about um, Munchausen's and that kind of stuff. So we have a lot of mm. stuff to get into, but I do want to talk yeah. about Passing on the Right, which is your latest book um, with, yes, Kurt Brownoller, one of my favorites. Love him. Portraying Skippy 
Batty Badison, Skip Batty Badison, Skippy Batty Badison, Skippy Very Batty good. Badison. Yes, uh, I don't think I remembered that. <laughs> a uh, comedian turned shock jock podcaster who's become right. You explain it. You can explain it better. I think I worked for this man, possibly. Yeah, we all have okay. at some point. <laughs> I mean, it was basically every asshole I've ever worked with whom I did not like. And and every person I grew up with in D.C. Uh, who, you know, entitled pricks who became GOP. Um, I grew up not far from Kavanaugh, where Brett Kavanaugh grew up. I knew people who went to Georgetown Prep. I mean, this was years after he was there. But I know that type very, very well. I mean, it's a very specific D.C. type. And uh, in fact, the party where he was accused of raping the woman, and I'm sure he did. There's no doubt in my mind that he raped that poor woman, is maybe five miles from where I grew up. Mm. So it's an area that I knew really well. So I wanted to combine combine everything that bothered me with politics with everything that bothered me in comedy, which I have been seeing recently, which is a, um, you know, a leaning towards the right, which I never noticed before. I mean, I got into comedy. I think most people got into comedy of my generation and before to get away from these fucking pricks, not to have to work with these assholes anymore. And to see a Jim Brewer or any of the Dennis oh Miller, any of these assholes, who are now uh, to the right of everyone else? Uh, it just it was it just surprised me because it was something I had never seen before. I mean, beyond that, uh, Jesse Waters is his name mm-hmm. from Fox and uh, Gutfeld from Fox. I mean, I it just astonished me really that this could. I mean, not that someone would do what they're doing, but it would that it would achieve some level of success. I mean, when you see Jesse Waters go to Chinatown, which he did on a segment. Or go, you know, make fun of Asian people with the sound of a gong and do yeah. karate moves, or go to Penn Station and mo- literally mock the homeless. You know, it, when I was coming up, you you know, comedians would try to help the homeless. It was you felt for those who were who were not at a level of where they probably could be or should be, and you never mocked those who were beneath you. And this whole new philosophy of going after those uh, beneath. Uh, Yeah. And people talk about punching down and I don't know if they really understand it, but to go to a Penn station and mock those who are homeless, um, I just found it such cruelty to to me. Comedy is just the opposite. I mean, you always go after those in power. You you always go after a Trump or a Putin or Ted Cruz or any of these assholes. You don't go after some poor guy or woman who is homeless in Penn Station. So that, to me, was a totally new realm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to combine the politics with the comedy, uh, both of which I despised, and I created out of that this one character who sort of encompasses everything that I hate uh, right now in those two realms. Um. That's so interesting that he is of a type and that he's an archetype. Because did you ever listen to the Adam Carolla show? I, you know, I know him a little bit just from listening to him over the years. I, I can't figure him out. There's a cruelty there, and what I don't understand about Adam is that he's a very smart guy who came up very blue collar. I don't understand the meanness, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's just like a cruelty, uh, and that's what bothers me. To me, the best comedy is always character based whether it's e- even an extension of a character if you're a stand up say Richard Pryor or Woody Allen or whomever uh, but it's always based uh, off of decency and it's never out of cruelty 
And I, I can't imagine any of these comedians lasting through the years because uh, I, I can't imagine people wanting to hear their material years from now. Right. I mean, yeah. It's I, I'm too close to because you know I I I was the news girl on the Corolla show for right. four years, so yeah. I'm yeah. like too close to it to be uh to have any uh, perspective. But there was some stuff at the very beginning of the book that was so close to stuff that Adam would say that I was like, wow, you have to be lampooning Adam. The stuff about, um, so Skippy talking about having been in the writer's room for shit. My dad says, and his jokes, (laughs) not his jokes being cut because, uh, Shatner's care because was it Shatner's character had to be likable and that back in my day characters didn't have to be likable, this word likable. And Adam would talk all the time about Archie Bunker didn't have to be likable. But he was though. See that that was the genius of the writing that he was likable. Right. Because he was ignorant, but he got his comeuppance either through Edith or his son. That is what I think people don't understand. Assholes are not Mm likable. And you know, Archie Bunker was an asshole, but within the realm of an ignorance that one was learning something from. And just having a straight fucking asshole mocking people doesn't interest anyone. And there's a reason why this type of writer, be it Adam Carolla or Skippy Batty Battison, aren't making it and then blaming the world is because they're assholes and no one wants to watch a mean comedy writer or comedian. I don't anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't last. It doesn't resound. There's no meaning to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a reason why right wing does not go with comedy. There's a reason yeah. for that. Just like there's are rules for cooking and there's rules for melody. You know, things just don't go together. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that right wing and comedy uh, is not a combination that is uh, going to last. I think it's, it's part of the current zeitgeist because of where we are right now, but it, I think it's a very much a lesser form. And I don't think people will be studying it in the future beyond look at how awful this was. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, I mean, did can I ask you questions yes. about that? I yeah. Mean, did you sense – I mean, so here's a guy who grew up blue-collar in New England, obviously had a difficult childhood. In a lot of ways, you Wait, are you talking about he, Adam? Yeah. He grew up in California. Oh, I thought he grew up in, in New England. No. Okay. So, But he had a difficult childhood. Yes. He was blue-collar. Yes. I mean, so why the meanness of going against those who might be looked at as not being uh, – his equal. I mean, what is it about? Is it an anger? Is, is it a jealousy from his part? Where does that anger and meanness come from? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. He's really mad at his parents. Um, he, they espoused, I think, they were on welfare at times and they espoused kindness and they, didn't take care of him or uh, show interest in him in the way he f- wishes that they should have. They were liberal. And so I think he's, he feels that everything that he achieved came despite them and that their system doesn't work 
and he did everything himself. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps uh, and like, look, this, you know, this kumbaya system doesn't work. Fuck that. It's, you know, uh, shame works and um, and tough love works and, uh, you know, calling things, you know, the truth works and not all this like, you know, euphemistic sort of squishy liberal bullshit. It's interesting to hear that because you hear people like Bill Clinton uh, or whomever who come up with terrible childhoods who go in the opposite direction. Who right. say, you know, my childhood was terrible. And that because of that, I understand what people are going through. It just interests me where people end up. I mean, we've all had. I think parents- he's challenged in the empathy department. Yeah. I have not seen him express. Yeah. Uh, or, or I've not I've not personally seen a lot of empathy come from him. I don't know how much he's capable of. Yeah. I, and I think you really need it when you're a comedy writer because uh, there's so much shit out there. And, you know, I think comedy writers smell the shit more clearly if you're mm-hmm. a good writer. And whether it's the way animals are treated or the way uh, this segment of society is treated or that segment of society, there's so much to go after. It just seems so strange to go after uh, those who want to make, I mean, they may not be right politically as far as his parents or, you know, far left or what have you, but to go after them with such anger, I think is the wrong route. And it just, it, that interests me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. I mean, this character, Skippy Battison grew up very privileged in Bethesda, Maryland, which is a rich area where Brett Kavanaugh lived. And he still has a chip on his shoulder, which I've seen on a lot of people who, grew up uh, rich and uh, they take it out on uh, certain groups. And I, I've seen this personally. I grew up with this. And that's one of the things I wanted to go after too. Like here's a rich dude who is all he does is blame his parents, even though they've done nothing but give him money and enable him to have this career that he wants to have. I think there's also rippling through that entire swath. There's a bit of, and this is a term that I've only recently kind of learned, but uh, the a narcissistic defense. So this idea of like, uh, like I'm gonna actually, you know what? I feel like I shouldn't even use the term because I'm not exactly sure I'm using it correctly. But like, I'm gonna hate you first. Like, I feel rejected by you, so I hate all of that. Like, I think that you know, there's, and I think that I see that in the people that begin to swing right. It's like the they felt rejected by the left. Well, we all did in high school. And I think, you know, one of the things I love about comedy is you you eventually find your group. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember uh, not fitting in in high school. I think most people didn't. But with comedy, you find those, you find your own family. You find those who were ostracized in high school, whether, you know, th- they weren't good at sports or they had a hair lip or they were homosexual or they were this or they were that. And it doesn't matter when you get out in the real world. I mean, if you are if you are talented in comedy, it's like music. I mean, you know, musicians don't care what you are as long as you're a good musician and comedy people are the same way. And, you know, we were all ostracized, but to me, you know, comedy is finding your group and, and finding that group of people you didn't find back in high school and moving forward and sort of 
doing good um, and going after the people who went after you in high school. It's not to remain angry at the world. And um, I don't think good comedy, I think good comedy only comes through goodness. And I think you have to have your lodestar in the right direction, whether you're a comedian or a writer. And if it's not in the right direction, I don't think it's going to last. I don't think any of this, the meanness is going to last. You know, I mean, you read these um, playwrights from 2000 years ago, Aristophanes or whomever, and it was always going after the rich politicians, always going after the assholes. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Woody Allen, any of these comedic characters that last are always based in decency. And it just surprises me because, you know, a lot of these guys, Adam and uh, Dave Chappelle, I mean, they're brilliant guys. Um, it just surprises me that they focus on certain things and they sort of get bogged down. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, they I, I don't really think you can move forward until you get past that. What do you make of like what? What what's your what are your Louis C.K. Louis C.K. <sighs> well, he was always an asshole, and uh, I mean, I knew people who knew him, and he was always a jerk. I mean, he would uh, treat people miserably. He treated Jimmy Fallon terribly, and treated writers terribly. Um, he's just an asshole. I, why I have no idea, but I think in the end it caught up with him, and for him to be so entitled as to think that he could jerk off in front of anyone <laughs> he wanted, yeah, uh, it's just um, you know no no proper person does that it's animalistic and uh yeah i think it's a real uh negative aspect of who he was but i think it represents who he was and i don't think it was an exception i think it was just who this guy was i never liked a guy i mean i think he's brilliant but i think he's a total fucking asshole and uh, i think that eventually proved to be true mm -hmm. i was listening to your podcast which, by the way, is your podcast like, is it on hiatus or is it is it done? No, it's on hiatus. I okay. mean, it's just a lot of work and I wanted to put out a few books and then and then go back to Got it. Got it. So doing it with Mike Sachs and Rob Schulte, which I didn't realize Rob Schulte was part of it. I know Rob. I like Yes. Um, I was listening yes. to the episode with, and I cannot believe I'm blanking on his name. I've read his books. John, he's from Wales. What is his name? Oh, John Ronson? Yes. <clears throat> Love John Ronson. Yeah. Um, S sweet guy. I mean, there's there's a case of a sweetheart who is out there doing it for the right reason. But really, it seemed, and I did not, I I, I have not gotten to the end of it. So maybe there's maybe uh, if I had gotten to the end, I would uh, amend my statement. But seemed a bit to be uh, giving an apology for Alex Jones. Well, um, crazy that, that he's was friends with him. Well, this was this was years ago now. I mean, three, four years ago, that interview took place. I think he, as a journalist, wanted to understand Alex Jones. That's fair. And I think, I think what he was saying, and I think this is very accurate, is that, you know, John is Jewish and obviously does not believe in what Alex Jones is saying, but he found himself liking Alex. Yeah. And that's a real problem because I have a lot of Jewish relatives who listen to him, who like Trump, who like GOP. And it interests me, why would you like that? What is it about that person that you like? And some of them are just seemingly likable. And off the air, Alex is known to be, Alex Jones is known to be a good person. He treats his coworkers well. He treats interviewers well. You know, he'll cook up a steak for you if you come over and interview him. 
So I think John was perplexed at why he felt he liked him. That was mm-hmm. my sense. But I also think that if I were to interview John now, he would have a different take on it because the problem is not uh, who they are as a person and what they're like off the air, but what people believe when they are on the air. And for someone like that to to come out and to call the you know the shooting at the elementary school a false flag operation and to continue with that for years. Yeah. There's no excuse for that. I mean, that's just madness. And, you know, right. to me, it's like a rabid dog that just needs to be taken down. It's just, and whether Alex himself believes it or not, I don't even give a shit because his believers believe it. Right. Right. That's the kind of the part that I was listening to um, most recently was John was saying that his belief is that Alex Jones is speaking in metaphors. And you were pointing out, but it's not coming off that way. But he well, that believes that they're metaphors. Well, exactly. And that was the problem I had with Andrew Dice Clay. I mean, Andrew Dice Clay would say, I'm I'm playing a character. Well, that may be the case, but if you're playing Madison Square Garden and you're telling jokes about 7-Eleven worker, Indian workers being the color of urine and, you're, and your uh, uh, audience is giving you a standing ovation, they're not applauding the character. Right. They're applauding the fact that you are telling jokes about an Indian American working at 7-Eleven who has darker skin than we do. And that, to me is the real difference. I mean, that's the problem too with trying to create a satirical character. And I had this problem too with this book is that you have to sort of make it known that you don't believe, even if it's written in the first person, like this book uh, is, you have to make it known that you do not um, abide by the, the the philosophy of what this character is spouting. How did and you, yeah, how did you thread that needle? I don't know. I mean, it. it I. I really... In a lot of ways, you have to sort of go way off the path and just say, and just sort of imply this guy's a fucking moron. Really, <laughs> this guy's an idiot. Because I have been confused with characters I've created who are satirical, and people have said, "Oh, you must believe this or, or that," and it's really the total opposite. It's just another way of satirizing something as, as you um, take over the mind in this character in the first person. And, yeah, so um, just so so listeners fully understand, this book is written by this guy who is a right-wing podcast host who is who feels that he's too spicy and his takes are too hot for the mainstream. And it's so funny. Um but it's, you know, written in the first person, which is something you've done in a number of books. You've t- you've assumed the character of ver- various characters. So also Stinker Let's Loose, right? Randy. Yep. What are right. the other ones that are you've done in first person? Oh, well, those are the main 3. Um of, Passable of this, and um- Pink passable and pink but those three that you mentioned are really the american male idiot Mm -hmm. and um i grew up with this in maryland i worked retail for 10 years i grew up with people like and i was friendly with people like this um who had very limited visions and knowledge and but they were they felt they were totally right so with this new character i wanted to sort of make fun of that with a lot of these memoirs that i've seen out there whether it's dennis miller or whomever in the first person and just show through total ignorance on this person's part um that i totally disagree with this mindset and um the the, the problem with this type of character is it's a very confident entitled moron <laughs> and i see it all the time in American politics. I grew up in DC. I know politics. I I had friends whose parents were politicians and lobbyists and lawyers 
And I just know this world and it just drives me crazy uh, because the world of the confident moron, because it's also from now I haven't heard a ton of them, but from your podcast also has some um, like phone bits, spoofs. What would you skits? I don't know what to call them. Bits um, where you I would say you play a confident more a a confident. uh, Yeah, a confident moron. Yeah, confident moron. Well, I mean, I see it on two ends. I see that, you know, a um, a GOP asshole, which, uh, you know, I grew up with, you know, friends, parents, uh, total confidence. Uh, You know, these people, as we're getting on with our lives, just trying to create and be good as a as a parent or as a brother, sister, a wife, a husband, they're in these Northern Virginia meeting rooms trying to take down, you know, the rights that women have fought for, you know, minorities have fought for. This is their lives. So you have that end of it. And then on the other end, you have people who are confident morons who are blue collar types, like the type I used to work with, who um, watch Fox or listen to Rush Limbaugh or whomever, who are so confident in their uh, knowledge of the world and the country uh, that there is no questioning. And, uh, you know, I, I worked with people like this who knew nothing about anything, but would become experts on world events because they listened to Rush Limbaugh. So it, it's, it's, it's both the high end and the low end of this, of this confident moron. And um, this sort of, this character, uh, uh, Skippy Battison sort of bridges both of them. I mean, he's an idiot who didn't do well in school, but his father's a lobbyist for the soda industry. So he's entitled and he gets whatever he wants. And basically he works his way up because his father pays for his, uh, for the opportunity for him to do this. You know, he gives him money and gives him places to stay. And I knew a lot of people like that. And and there might be some resentment from my part because I didn't have that on my end. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't graduate from the lampoon and, my parents weren't rich and didn't know people. So it's sort of going after, in some ways, all the dickheads that uh, I felt were advancing uh, more quickly than I did after school. Do you have a chip on your shoulder? Yeah, I think everyone does. I mean, I totally have a chip on my shoulder. For many years, it was I was a lot angrier when it came to... You know, these people, uh, kids out of Harvard Lampoon who would get these jobs right away. But, you know, the... the the more you're out in the world, the more you see that, um, you know, I did have it really good in, in a lot of ways. And no, I didn't get a, a job in comedy running straight out of college, but did I deserve to do that? No. And I, I think I'm better off for having worked retail for 10 years from 15 to 25. And I think, um, you know, the fact that I did what I did uh, and did it on my own means more to me. And I think it, it becomes more meaningful uh, as a comedy writer, because I can use that experience where others may not have been able to use it. So I, when I, you know, when I was young, I had a tremendous chip on my shoulder, but that sort of disappeared uh, over the years. When you see how difficult life is, pretty much for everyone. Where did you work retail? Kent Mill Records in Virginia and D.C. and Maryland. Actually, the same uh, store chain that Ray Seahorn uh, from Better Call Saul worked at. She worked in the Georgetown. Um, store. We've talked about this. And actually, um, also, uh, uh, Jesus, he's mentioned in the book, um, a a comic I love for some reason. I'm just, he's from Northern Virginia. Oh, Patton Oswalt. I love Patton. And uh, I actually sent him a copy of the book. 
he worked in uh, the competitor to where I worked. I worked at Kent Mill Records. He worked at Waxy Maxies in Northern Virginia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but but it's just one of those things that you know because I worked in that world for ten years, uh, it it gave me insight into a world that I think a lot of people who uh, maybe went to Harvard or wherever don't have, and that is this type of person who's working for you know at that time six seven eight dollars an hour wearing you know steel toe chucka boots who eat their lunches standing up who don't have insurance who don't have vacation uh just gave me an insight into that world which um all the characters that i've dealt with except for skippy uh, sort of um are are of that world you know i always picture these characters as working retail um for like you know 10 bucks an hour in in gaithersburg maryland and living in a one-bedroom apartment in these complexes where you know that i used to see so everything that i write is really based on that now i mean everything is is sort of geared uh to that world that very specific universe Mm -hmm. well listen if they live in one of these apartments they're going to need to make sure that their home is secure. And I'm sure you all know about the Ring Video Doorbell by now, but something you may not know, Ring that makes an alarm. That is the greatest segue ever. I'm the queen of segues. Holy shit. That's right. I have been uh, crowned and everything. I sit on a throne, a segue throne. Ring makes an alarm. It's true. It makes a, They make an alarm. Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. Best of all, you can easily install it yourself and and Ring didn't stop there. They've changed the home security game with Ring Alarm Pro. That's why I decided to work with Ring to put a ring of security around my home with the new Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is next level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. And after using it, I think they're totally right. Ring Alarm Pro helps secure my entire home and the Wi-Fi it runs on with Ring Alarm Pro, Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router. So this thing helps protect your home and secure your network. So now I have a secure network with a crazy strong signal for all the devices across my home. And if you're anything like me, that's a lot of devices. Look, when we moved into this house, Daniel told me his dream of having a smart home with a thousand million devices that you could control all by your phone. And I said, I I don't know that I I don't know. Do we need that? And uh, now we have that, and it is cool. But the Ring Alarm Pro that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, the smart home again, but it's all secure because we have the Ring Alarm Pro, and uh, we are going to be going on vacation. And I'm not going to tell you guys where, and I'm not going to tell you guys when because I don't trust any of you. But the good thing is knowing that while we're gone. Everything's secure, and we can keep an eye on it from wherever we are. Uh, and that's the kind of confidence and security you get with the Ring Alarm Pro. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, which is an amazing deal, by the way, I get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call me and can request emergency services. You may not have known, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm, and to protect my home, I've gone pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash best friend. That's ring.com forward slash best friend. I also want to tell you guys about BetterHelp. 
And I also want to tell you guys, and if you're watching the video version of this, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen, you might be thinking, huh, she's far too young to be putting on glasses for reading. What is she doing? Are those phony glasses? Yes, I'm 23 years old. I definitely don't need glasses to help me see. And I definitely didn't experience some kind of very confusing like um, blurriness when I took them off a second ago. Let's get back to BetterHelp. Allison Rosen is your new best friend is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Your relationships take work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? Uh, you guys know I am a, a huge, I, I couldn't, couldn't be where I am today without therapy. I'm a huge fan of therapy. I recommend therapy for anyone who is open to it. Uh, uh, just uh, just a therapy it helps. I, I do therapy every single week. Um, it helps me so much. I think you guys should try it. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Allison Rosen listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash best friend. That's betterhelp. B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash best friend. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash best friend. Okay. And we're back. And I am concerned at my like, but therapy, you should try it. Might be a little too vague, but I feel like everyone knows what is involved in therapy. Mike Sachs, we're back with you. Hello. Hello, therapy. Everyone should try. It. I do believe everyone should try it. No, I'm, I totally agree with that. I suffered for many years, and um, I found therapy way too late. How old were you when you when you found therapy? Wow, I was uh, early 30s. Oh wow! And, yeah, and I really, I you know, in my family, it was not looked at as being anything to be respected. It was always mm -hmm. looked down on. I mean, my mom was obsessed with medical, but it was always uh, physical problems, uh, never mental problems. And there was a pill for everything except for certain mental issues that needed to be addressed. Right. So then in your early 30s, what finally got you in the door? I was just tired. And um, I just, you know, you know, you live in New York, you know, every, everyone you know is in therapy. So I thought I would give it a shot. And I'm glad I did. Um, I it, I went on medication for the first time. I went on serious uh, medication, Welbutrin and Prozac, which I'm still on the uppermost doses of each. And mm -hmm. that helped. Had you on your own real, like had you kind of diagnosed yourself with like, Oh yeah, I think I have depression. And I, like, what did you think was well, going I, on? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've had OCD, depression, anxiety since I was a kid, even too young to know what it was and i eventually found you know just you just learn about it as you get older but i do believe it's great when i when i hear about these kids who have ocd and anxiety and depression who get help at a very young age i didn't have that and i wish i did my life would have been easier um i think that i've become who i've become because of having gone through that so I don't blame anyone for that. I just think – I don't think any kid needs to go through this alone. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to go through. So how does your OCD manifest or how did it when you were younger? Uh, recurring thoughts, having to 
touch things in certain places and also a very specific fear of getting sick while traveling. And that was really due to my mom, who was a hypochondriac and would insist that I was sick every time we went away and be taken to the doctor beforehand. So I, I can sort of not even sort of, I can very specifically pinpoint where that one came from. So she would take you to the doctor before you went on trips to what? Like make sure you were... Yeah, so I wouldn't be sick on the trip. And then would the doctor do anything? Well, um, I went to a doctor in Virginia, uh, close to where I grew up, who my mother found, who prescribed for me medication that looking back, I probably should not have been on. And that was codeine. Um, I was on codeine for at least half of my childhood, always, uh, not always, but for like half the month, each month I would be on this medicine, Phenergan with codeine. Mm -hmm. Codeine was to suppress coughing and Phenergan was an anti-nausea for the codeine. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's also murky. I don't know of other doctors who would prescribe that. She was looking for that and felt that was the only thing that could help me. So that is what I was on as a kid. And only until recently, when I mentioned that on various podcasts and such, people have got in touch and and they said, what were you, what was a kid doing on codeine for half of his childhood? And did that affect your, who you are? And I really do think it did affect who I was because I felt completely different. Um, thinking wise and other kids, and I'm sure there are other reasons for this as well, but the coding, being on coding all the time did not help matters. Yeah. It probably made you kind of zonked out, right? Yeah. And, and I think it made it, it rewired my brain. I mean, mm -hmm. I was on it. I'm I mean, it was for, you know, from the age of six until 17, uh, you know, half that time. So years I was on this stuff and but what yeah. symptoms was it supposedly treating? Well, my mom had a uh, phobia of uh, pneumonia, and she had pneumonia as a kid. Oh, and her big her big fear was that I would uh, come down with pneumonia, which I never did. But I did have uh, croup cough a lot, and I did get sick with colds a lot, like most kids. So that was uh, her way of treating it was putting me on this medication, you know, which is interesting because my daughter, knock on wood, I, I sh you know, I took it to the doctor a year ago and the doctor was amazed that she had only been on antibiotics once. And I was on antibiotics all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, this doctor was really like my mom's Dr. Nick, the doctor for Elvis. And he would prescribe whatever she wanted. And, you know, she would put me on it. Now, I don't, um, I'm not angry at her for doing that. I, it just perplexes me. She's not around anymore. Like, I can't really ask her. But as a parent now, it's, it's something that I would never do to my own daughter. Yeah. Was she on a lot of medications as well? She was on a lot. Yeah, she was on a lot of medications. Everything but uh, medications that she should have been on, I think. I mean, she was... Um, manic and uh depressive and anxious and she should have been on medication for that but she wasn't you know for her it was always a it always manifested itself in physical mm -hmm. ways so she was always sick with something but you know looking back now i think it was because of mental issues 
I mean, I guess it's like, and this, perhaps this is being too forgiving, but it's like the people, the anti-vaxxers, I don't agree with their decisions at all, but what they think they're protecting their kids. They think they're making the correct, like your mom was not doing right by you, but she, what she thought she was doing was keeping you safe. That's right. And, um, you know, she came up in a different generation where her parents escaped the Holocaust and there were certain worries that she was given from her parents where if you did get sick uh, where they grew up, her, her parents, you, you know, you could likely very well die. Right. And you had to prevent certain things. So I, I'm not in any way upset or mad at her um, at all. It's just, uh, it just perplexes me a little bit that, uh, you know, she felt I would have to be on this. And it's something that I want to break. I don't want my daughter to have to go through that. What country did her parents escape from? From Lithuania and Latvia. Where was your dad in all of this? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, he was a great, great guy, but in a lot of ways, uh, he uh, was, you know, he was a, uh, he was sort of a pushover when it came to certain things. And if my mom said I was sick, then I was sick and that was it. And, you know, he would have to take me to the doctor. Uh, he, sh- I think, you know, in retrospect, he should have stepped in and said no, but, you know, I can't fault him. Uh, he had, you know, he was wonderful in, in a lot of ways. So I, I hear a lot of people my age who complain about their parents, but they're still alive. Mine aren't. So I mm-hmm. just really, more than anything, just miss them. Yeah. That must have been hard to lose them. Yeah, it was. I mean, at any age, uh, it was tough. And uh, that was also why I was going through a separation. Oh. But what's interesting is that uh, my my parents passed away and I went through a separation or a divorce. And, but it was really only then that I felt, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. However I want to do it. And that's when I started writing these books, these, these fake novelizations and these fake found items. It was, it was sort of freeing at a certain point because it shows you that life is short mm. and I didn't have to impress anyone anymore. And I just thought, fuck it uh, here. I'm just going to put out what I want. And I don't really give a shit what anyone thinks. And that was very freeing. That came about seven, eight years ago now. Um, it was a real schism uh, between the earlier period and that period. Um, where before I would put out books, but I would do it through traditional publishing. Or I would write articles for Esquire or GQ or Vanity Fair. And uh, not necessarily on things I wanted to write. Um but after that, I felt, you know, there's no time to do uh, work on something I don't want to work on. And I'm not going to work on something that's going to take a year of my time and that I'm not completely happy with. So even if it's just for me and a few readers and I'm not making much money, that's what I'm going to do. So was it because you were, you were suddenly confronted with mortality? I think so. And also there was a freedom, too, of um, not – um, being married to someone who uh, was not understanding of what I was trying to do. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, you do hear about uh, this with comedians, and I'm not in any way comparing myself to this, but when you read about George Carlin or Lenny Bruce or Woody Allen, there's always a period where, or Richard Pryor 
where they're doing something comedically and then they reach a point where they say, you know what, this isn't me mm-hmm. and I want to do what I want to do. And it's only at that point that they really explode. And again, I'm not comparing myself in any way to them. I mean, they were geniuses. But in my case, I knew enough about their lives to know that I needed to stop trying to appease other people mm-hmm. uh, and with articles and books that didn't really interest me and just to do what interested me, even if it was uh, you know strange or weird or you know if parents might not understand it or friends might not understand it. So it was really sort of a um, a gift in a way. It's like, all right, here you go. Um, you're still young enough to do this, uh, but old enough to know that there's not a uh, you know that much time left. So you really do have to take advantage of what's out there, and you really do have to appease yourself. Um, even if it's not through money, because in the end, um, I know a lot of people who make a lot of money in comedy and they're, they're miserable. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's really only when you can produce what you want to produce that, um, you feel free. And I did anyway. I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I've just been thinking about what is it that I spend my time doing And what is it that I want to spend my time doing? And how can I sort of reprioritize it? Because right now, like so many people in the pandemic, there's just no boundaries on my work. And I am lucky to be able to, you know, my work is something that I love doing, but it is very amorphous and diffuse. And I would rather sort of get some boundaries around it and and figure it out so that I'm not just kind of like sitting in front of my computer all day being distracted by like, what was I trying to do? Like, I think there's a way to work smarter to use a buzzword. Yeah. It's not easy to do that because it's very solitary existence. Mm-hmm. You know, this book, uh, Passing on the Right, took me a year to write. And a lot of days I would get up and think, and think what the fuck am I doing writing this book that may not make any sense? Uh, you know, it's 450 pages. What is the purpose of this. It's only when you reach the end that you can see that there's a purpose. But I think you reach a certain point in your career where you know not to stop. Mm -hmm. That even if you don't understand it, you know that you have to keep going forward. Is your um, writing fairly linear? Uh, Like your like do you like did you start with the beginning of the book? Oh yeah, always, but it's never um, it's never plotted out. It's never Mm -hmm. Oh you don't do an outline. No, no, I don't. And that's, um, I think, a fallacy with a lot of writers who feel that they're taught that they have to do an outline. Um, I never do. I kind of know where I want to go, but I kind of look at it as like driving a car on a a rural road and you see as far as the uh, headlights and you don't really see beyond that. You know where you want to end up. But I don't think you really should see beyond that. I think there's an excitement where if you don't know where you're going, the reader's not going to know either. Um, and I've always found plotting it out as being very uh, limiting to me. It sort of uh, takes away from the creativity. Yeah. Do you know Noelle Hancock? Noelle? No, I don't. Okay. She's a she. She was a writer in New York, and then she moved to I don't some somewhere tropical. She I don't, she might be back in New York now. Uh, but yeah, she had said something similar about like writing a novel. She had like a a train going through a tunnel, like you only kind of see right directly in front of you. Um, But yeah, and I have always, I am not an outline person. Um, 
And whenever I sit down to write something, wherever I end up is I never knew I was headed there. So outlines right. for me have been very difficult, but also right, structuring long form is very difficult for me. Well, it's um, difficult for everyone. But the problem, too, is I found that when you are being taught this in college, you're being taught by professors who aren't out in the real world making a living at what they're teaching. And oftentimes they're telling you to do things that don't what that won't work for you and you really have to teach yourself what's going to work and not work and i think that is a problem with a lot of mfa programs is uh this is a type of thing where you have to learn it but you have to teach yourself in the end and i just taught myself that uh plotting it out like my teachers taught me in college to do doesn't work for me mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with not doing or doing it opposite that of what your teachers taught you. In fact, I think that's a good thing. So um, there, I think there does have to be a fuck you among writers uh, out there. Like, okay, I was taught this way, but it doesn't work for me. But you know what? Fuck you. This is the way I'm going to do it. Hmm. And there's no right or wrong way except the way that works for you. And if and if it works for you, then don't plot it out. Or if it does work for you, then plot it out. But you do, really do have to teach yourself what works and what doesn't work. Oh, I have, I have – more questions about that, but just picking right up on that spirit. Listen, do you identify as crypto curious? If you've thought about entering the world of cryptocurrency, but felt a little overwhelmed, Coinbase makes learning to buy and sell simple. Uh, look, I think cryptocurrency is pretty interesting. I'm a little, I find it daunting, but I'm excited to learn more about it with Coinbase. They make it so easy to check it all out in one place. They offer a trusted and easy to use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market and make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets, whether you're looking to diversify, just getting started or searching for a better way to access crypto markets start today with Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash Allison. Sign up at coinbase.com slash Allison for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash Allison. Okay, so Mike, what is your um, like daily writing routine? If you have one. Yeah, I get up uh, early and I put my daughter off, you know, make her breakfast, get her off to school and get started immediately. And that's usually like 8 a.m. And I'll just work um, until I'm tired. You know, at a certain point, you're not cre- you're not producing. So I think you need to stop. But um, I think working entails not necessarily writing in, in front of a computer. It can be going and taking a walk and thinking about something, or it can be taking a day off and doing research or networking. You know, as long as one is creating and moving forward, I think that is what one should do. So I always try to move forward every day, whether it's you know from a business sense of writing or a creative sense. But I do, um, because of my OCD, I have to write um, at least, you know, a few hours every day. And that's every day. That's the weekend. That's holidays. That's New Year's Eve. I mean, it's just every day. Um, And that's just where that's just what helps me. And I think I'm lucky in that sense, because I do know people with OCD who have to touch, you know, light bulbs in certain places or have to lick this or have to do that. 
And I do think that there is an association, a connection between OCD and creativity. And I also think that there is an energy to it, which I've tried to use to my advantage. Um, I actually reached out to Dr. Oliver Sacks, no relation, um, mm-hmm. about o- the connection between OCD and comedy, because through the people that I interviewed, I maybe interviewed, say, 70 people and 35 made the final cut of the books. I would say 70, 80 percent had OCD. So and, interesting. Yeah, because I knew I knew anxiety and depression was there, but I didn't know about OCD. And the only reason I asked was because I have it. And um, I knew David Sedaris had it because he's written about it. So I asked him. And so I started asking people and uh, they mostly said that they did have it. So I'm wondering if it just wires your brain in a different way where you look differently at the world, where it's almost an advantage to people where having gone through the hell of having it as a kid, you can now use it to your advantage in a creative sense. What did he say? He didn't know of any connection um, he hadn't heard of any. He found it interesting that there might be. Um, I, you know, through no scientific uh, experimentation or studies on my own, I do believe that there is a connection in two ways. One is that your brain is wired differently, that you think differently. And two, that if you can train yourself to use that energy where you get uncomfortable if you don't do something every day, in this case, writing, uh, you can use that to your advantage where you, you really, produ- you know, if you work every day, you can produce a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if it's three pages a day, uh, you can produce uh, two, 300 page books in a year, you know? So it, it's, it's a, it's a very powerful energy and uh i think one can harness it um if and it took me years to do and to even think about this but i think one can do that and if one does do that a lot can be created from that do you take naps no do you go to bed early i do i go to bed no later than 11 that's good um what are you working on now I am working on a book that is a um, about the marketing of uh, this book, Passing on the Right. I did what I always tell people not to do, young writers not to do, and I hired a PR person. Ooh, I have noticed that you have been on social media posting little PR things. <laughs> and people think that's fake. That is not fake. That That is real. And I spent oh, a wow. lot of money. For uh, this person who shall go unnamed and everything that you read is real. So it's just basically a collection of dialogue between me and this person that I hired uh, who never, uh, even after uh, we worked together for two months, uh, really came to understand what he was selling, which uh, hopefully will make for an entertaining book. I cannot believe these are all real. Yeah, they are. I think at the be- I think I read these and then I reached out. I read these. At the beginning I wasn't sure. And I was like, "Oh, I think maybe you're encountering some speed bumps in the process of trying to promote passing on the right." So I emailed you and I said, "Hey, do you want to come on my show and talk about the book?" And then I, the more I read them, I'm like, "No, this is a bit you're doing. I had no idea these were real." These are real. Um, so you hired it- this person and you're getting a book yeah. out of it. 
Yeah, so hopefully I'll get some money out of it. I mean, this is not cheap. Uh, and no, it really, it's crazy it, expensive. Man, um, you know, f- marketing a book is a subject that I, you know, you mentioned I have nine books. That's true. I have nine books out and I'm going to have 10 by the end of the year. And I still don't understand marketing. It's very murky to me. Uh, you know, I use a metaphor of, uh, you want the book to reach cruising altitude, and mm-hmm. but to get it to cruising altitude, what does one have to do? Uh, it's it's a very mysterious process to me, and I thought by taking that route of hiring someone, it would make it easier, and all it did was um, make it harder for me to make money off this book because you're in the hole a certain amount from hiring this person. But from being on the other end of it, having worked at Vanity Fair as an editor, I know firsthand that marketers of books don't know what the fuck they're doing typically, where they will send magazines, books that have no um, connection to that magazine. Mm-hmm. And the problem in the past was that you would get all these review copies and they would just end up being sold to the Strand, you know, or to use bookstore or to bookstores. Right. Um, and it would get out there before the book even came out. So it's something I'm still trying to figure out is how does one sell a book? Now, the, the answer might be there are certain books that people just don't want to buy. You cannot sell, and especially if they're confusing, especially if there's no elevator pitch. And with this current book, I mean, it's doing well, but it's only because you know, of, of certain people putting out the good word about it, but it's not a book. You can just say, Oh, this is what it's about. You know, it's not a parody book. It's not mm-hmm. a humor book. You would find in Barnes and Noble where it's fake tweets from Trump or historical Facebook posts or something simple or cats versus dogs. It's a little more complicated. And when you get more complicated, when you get more satirical, especially when it's in the first person, especially when your name isn't on it, my name is nowhere on this book. Right. It's a heart sell. And yet I bet if like Marjorie Taylor Greene or something were to write some very, and it wouldn't be good, but it'd be like a first person, like, you know, alfalfa eating kindergarten teachers manifesto or something, they they would sell a thousand copies Oh, of their quote thousand. unquote humor book. I mean, a thousand, a million. Yeah, a million. I mean, that's the thing with, with comedy is that, I I think that the more intelligent the idea, the harder it is to, first of all, get an agent for it, and second of all, have that agent sell it to a publisher, and third of all, to sell it to the public. I mean, I, I think people's satirical and humor IQs have dropped. Mm-hmm. Where in the, in the early 70s or the 60s, you would have black humor, dark humor, National Lampoon, Slash and Burn type humor. That doesn't exist anymore, and you have to be very clear cut in what you're trying to say. And I think if you go out of that uh, bubble, it just confuses people. I'm hoping that changes, um, but it is a hard sell. Now, again, I don't have to make as much money because I don't have an agent and I'm putting this out um, in, under my own imprint. So I get more per book um, than I would if it was through traditional publishing. But it's a hustle and, and it's a part of a writer's job at least 40% is it's a business and you have yeah. to uh, think about it as a business and market it as such. And it's, um, 
it's an everyday struggle. I mean, how do you rise above the stimuli of everything out there? Not just books, but podcasts, TV shows, music, uh, movies, everything. Uh, yeah. you know, how do you compete with that? And it's, st- it's something I'm, you know, I've been doing it for 25 years. I'm still trying to figure it out. It's still murky to me. Well, where can, where should they go to buy the book? Uh, you can get it anywhere. I mean, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent sites. Uh, it's it's available online in hard copy, digital, and I did the audio version myself. I read it. Uh, that'll be coming out in next month or so. Um, okay. Interviewer to interviewer, have you interviewed anyone who was just a real dick? Yes. If you'd like to say who that is. Yeah, I don't care. Um, she actually died. Uh. Um, I was just talking about her. She, uh, Ann Beatty, she was a writer for SNL mm. and actually Carrie Fisher portrayed her on 30 rock. And, um, she was really the only person where I basically hung up on her. I just couldn't deal with her. I mean, she was just so rude, uh, which is, you know, unfortunate because for any of these interviews I do, 20 to 30 hours of preparation. So I did a tremendous amount of preparation on her. And, um, you know, she was an early National Lampoon writer and then early SNL writer. She was the girlfriend of Michael O'Donohue. And I think, you know, speaking of chips on shoulder, I think she had one because I don't think she wrote uh, as much as she claimed she did. I think it was Michael mm-hmm. O'Donohue. Um, and it was just a meanness. And I, I've reached that point where I don't want to deal with mean people. Yeah. And I don't care how brilliant you are. I don't really give it a shit. Uh, uh, if, if you treat me, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not Mr. Sensitive either, but if you're so rude that I can't get any answers out of you. Um, and that was a case where I, I ended the interview after 10, 15 minutes. Now, in a lot of cases where if an interview doesn't work, it usually has to do with the opposite reason where they're too modest or they don't want, they don't have an ego mm-hmm. enough to talk about themselves. So when an interview didn't work, which would happen quite often, it would be not because they were rude, but because they were too nice. You know, they didn't want to talk about themselves. But in that specific case, uh, it was a total meanness. And there's also people that I didn't even go after because I knew that they were not good to interview, whether it was Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, Christopher Guest, or whomever. I just have no, t- I don't have any interest in that. I don't want to wrangle someone to do an interview and then wrestle them into telling me something. I just don't give a shit. There's plenty of talent out there where I don't have to deal with assholes. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had this experience, which I just talked about this last week, which I have asked other interviewers this. No one has ever said, yes, I know what you mean. And I always expect someone will. But if I read someone's book, if it's a memoir, and I don't mean like a Skippy memoir, but like a a straightforward memoir, if I read their book and then I interview them and there's not enough time that has passed between it, I actually find that it stymies me because any question I could think to ask, I pretty much already know the answer to. And then I'm uh, yes. worried. Have you had this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh thank God. So. I truly have never encountered yeah. another person who has said, yes, I know what you mean. And it makes me feel like, why is it just me? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. And that is one of the reasons I don't interview certain people because there needs to be enough to ask. And if yes. there's not enough to ask, <laughs> let me tell you something. If you're trying to fill a long interview, a Playboy length interview, and 
you're struggling to ask them. You should always have too many questions. And if you yeah. have too few, the interview will not work. I find, won't. yeah. I mean, this is lately for me, it's, it's only ever podcasts where this comes up. But I find as long as I just let enough time elapse between when I read the book and the interview, then at least I will have like forgotten all the like, ex- you know, the extreme detail that'll make me unable to answer the, to ask the questions but oftentimes i'm like cramming so it'll be like i finished it you know an hour before and then i'm like i know the answer to every single thing i would want to ask well that's a problem with writers i mean in a lot of ways we lead very uninteresting lives and if you read a book that answers all the questions that you want to ask yeah um, it's a problem and there's a very few number of amount of people that you can get a full length playboy length interview out of and um a lot of it, you know, a lot of the times it didn't work out was because there just wasn't enough material there. One needs a tremendous amount of material to fill a, uh, a an interview like that. And that's what I'm doing now for New Yorkers. I'm doing these long, uh, lengthy interviews. And I found that it's hard to find people who uh, you need a certain amount of uh, experience, but you also need to not have been interviewed too often because if you have been, you always answer the same question. You see it across numerous interviews that they sort of memorize these mm-hmm. questions and these answers and you want right. something different. Do you pitch people for that or do they assign you? No, I pitch people. I mean, I went after John Schwartzwelder who um, was a, I've been going after him for years since the first book of interviews that I put out and here's a kicker. And he mm-hmm. was very, very, nice and gracious and and he said no very in a very friendly nice way and then he said no for the second book and it was only when i interviewed him for the new yorker he said yes not because of me but because he grew up reading the new yorker so it was really the new yorker's name rather than my name that eventually enticed him to say yes right that's amazing now that must make you feel good to be in the new yorker well, yeah, it, I mean, it definitely does. But I didn't read The New Yorker until I was out of college. I didn't know from it. I mean, the, I didn't. It wasn't around the house, I can assure you. And um, I remember when I first read it, I was like twenty three, twenty four. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just the fact that I'm in it uh, is incredible because I was never on the fast track to anything. I mean, I never won awards. I never wrote for the school paper. I never wrote for anyone. So the fact that I can write and pitch to New Yorker is incredible. I never, I never would have envisioned that. That's so cool. Um, Mike Sachs, do you have? So we have a segment called "Just Me or Everyone." Yep. People, do you have a "Just Me or Everyone"? I do. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Let's hear it. All right, because honestly, I've never brought this up before. Oh, ooh, hot scoop. Okay, so I'm in my 40s. I'm 47, right? I I go for a lot of walks. And I wouldn't say every time, but I would say a lot. When I pass a couple, I'll think, are they doing it? (laughs) And my question is, do other people think this? Because I'm in my fifth decade, and- is that even appropriate anymore when 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 I see a couple to think to wonder if they're fucking and does it even matter? I mean, what why do I think that? What does this say about me? I love that you're admitting this. I love that you're admitting this, but the question I'm wondering is 
And I don't find myself thinking that very often. Um, I think I probably at one point did wonder that when I was younger. But are you like, is the question, are they still doing it? Or is the no. question like, are they are they at the point in their relationship that yes. they are doing? Okay. Yeah. So the have, question is, are they doing it? Not have they done it in the past and stopped and started again, but are they right now? Like have have they come from just having done it? Oh, I see. Are they fresh from coitus, <laughs> or just you know, are are they doing it in at this at this point in their relationship? Like right. have they reached that point where they're do and just who, who use? I don't know, man. I mean, who calls it, it doing it? Yeah, yeah. who who do, who calls it doing it? But I mean, I did when I was like in. I remember in third grade when someone would say "do it" or "doing it." It was so what? funny. Third grade. Third, yeah. Wow, that's early. No, I really? to me it was yeah. That's when that's when do it and doing it was like the funniest thing ever because anyone would say do it and it was like <laughs> like tons of guffaws. Right. And so titters. I'm 47. I'm not seven <laughs> anymore, and I'm still wondering this. But I mean, do you wonder that if you pass a couple and you don't know if they're friends or or in a relationship? Right. Do you wonder? I wonder if they're doing it. Um, I just, I don't think I think about that very often anymore, but look, it's just, I, I think I am, you know, my, the peak for me to wonder about other people's sexuality is low right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's inverted. It's inverted. Well, cause I just said peak and then I described like a nadir. Um, so I, I personally don't, but I can't be the only, you can't be the only one. There's people who are going to write in who are like, yes, I wonder about that all the time. (laughs) Now it may have been all the coding I took as a kid. I don't know, but you know, that, that's, that's what I thought of immediately when I solved this question. In general, do you find yourself thinking that they are, or they aren't, or you're just curious about it? I just wonder like an eight year old, because I think in some ways I'm very immature and, um, I'm very private in a lot of ways and I never really talk to friends about it. And I just like wonder if it's going on, you know, it's like that scene in days and confused where one of the characters was up in the moon tower and he looked at over in Austin and he said, I wonder how many people are now doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of what it's like, I guess I, I live a very insular life. I mean, I write all day alone. People read these alone. Um, it's a solitary life. I love you know, I'm a I'm sort of a solitary person, but um, there is a hunger sort of to know what's what people are doing out there and I what mean, they're thinking. I will say when older, not super older, but like on the older side of the reproductive years, couples all of a sudden like surprise pregnancy. I didn't know I could get pregnant anymore. When that happens, I'm like, look at you guys still doing it. You know, so that well, exactly. happens for sure. Exactly. Like, and I see a pregnant person, I always just think she did it. <laughs> <laughs> she, I know she did. I know she did it. Someone did it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I remember, and this had to have been fun for my parents. I remember announcing to them, "You guys did it three times because they have my <laughs> sister and me." Right. And then I knew that my mom had had a miscarriage before me. So I right. announced this and they just let that one. Yeah. My brother once said to my parents, did you two screw? <laughs> now he was 25 when he asked. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was like eight. And then, uh, do you have a, Hey, go fuck yourself. 
Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, one has to do with the book, uh, which is um, Ted, you know, any GOP motherfuckers. And I found myself, yeah, I grew up, as I said, around DC. I know this type, but in the past seven, eight years, it's just gotten uh, toxic. Uh, and whether it's Ted Cruz or whether it's uh, Jordan, uh, whatever his name is, um, I just despise them. I, I, I hate them. Um, whether they believe what they're saying or not, because I have a lot of relatives and I know a lot of people who believe this shit. And I think it's just destructive. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's a fucking moron. She's an idiot and has nothing to do with not having gone to college or she just has no academic interest in anything. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, just a hatred for these sons of bitches that's one. And the other thing is uh, peppercorn. I hate peppercorn. <laughs> hey, 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 go fuck yourself. I hate it. <laughs> Do you hate pepper? I don't like pepper. I don't like salt. But there's something about pepper. I, I had as a kid peppercorn soup. And I oh. never. Oh, it was. Was it a cream based situation? No, it wasn't. It was like a vegetable. Uh, like a chicken. It was something I had at a friend's house and I never forgot it. And anytime anything has any peppercorn on it, I just about go crazy. I don't like peppercorn either. I feel like it's just like anytime you bite into it, it's just an explosion of pain in your mouth. Yes, right. Do you want that when you eat? Isn't eating supposed to be about pleasure? Do I want to eat something hard that tastes like shit? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. I don't. But I also don't understand like steak au poivre, which I'm probably butchering the, you know, anything with like a, like a big chunk of pepper in the sauce. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's the mosquitoes of food. I mean, there's no reason for it. It doesn't need to exist. I feel like we could have do, done the whole episode on just this. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, doing it and peppercorns. That's right. <laughs> it was so nice having you oh, on the show. Allison, I love it. I love you. And I thank you so much for having me on. When you asked, I was really happy because um, I've been asked to do a lot, of, not a lot, but you know, quite a few podcasts, but I love yours and I love you. And I really appreciate you even reaching out. Thank you so, so, so much. So tell everyone again, uh, so they, they can get Passing on the Right and your other books, wherever books are found. I will link to it in the episode summary. Um, tell them uh, where they can follow you and your website and all that stuff. Anything else? Yeah, thanks. Um, MikeSachs.com. And I'm on Twitter, MikeBSachs, and on Instagram. And uh, email me, MikeBSachs at gmail.com. I love getting emails. I mean, that's another pet peeve when I reach out to people and email them and uh, writers and they never get back. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Of yeah. course you want to. I mean, it's a lonely business. And if you write me, I will write you back. I mean, it's it's very simple. So if you want to write me, MikeBSachs at gmail.com, I will write back to you. I mean, that, I can be friends with you. I mean, you hurt. He made that yes. promise on my show, so Goddamn you know right that he's he'll uphold his word. I'm not fudging around here. This is the real deal, sweetheart. If, if you see someone and you wonder, are they doing it? Mm -hmm. Two people specifically. Actually, mm -hmm. you know what? Why limit it? If you see some situation and you think, are they doing it? You email Michael. I mean, Mike. <laughs> Mike B. Sachs. Actually, if you could take a picture of this couple <laughs> and then send it to me. Yeah, and I'm then he'll weigh in. Ooh, Yes. 
pictures and then everyone can weigh in on whether people are doing it. Yes, I'll have the definitive answer. You send me the picture of the couple, I'll answer the question for you. Oh my God. God, life is delicious, isn't it? Forward it to me because I want to know. I want to. I want to know what <laughs> your definitive you. answer was. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, you guys. Uh, I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash Allison Rosen. Patreon. Go bonus episodes of the Friend Zone. That's my Patreon podcast. All sorts of rewards, fun stuff. Uh, if you sign up for an annual subscription, you get two months free. So twelve months. For the price of 10. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, please make sure, even if you don't, make sure you're subscribed uh, or following or whatever they call it in your app of choice. I trust that you guys know how podcasts in apps work and things like that. Make sure to leave us a nice comment, a nice review. It really helps out the show. And um, follow me on social media at Allison Rosen and check out my other shows, uh, Upworthy Weekly and Childish. And um, thank you again, Mike. This was so much fun. And oh, listeners... Thank you. Thank you again for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go.